Thank you, first of all, to um, Mandy for having us uh, or having me here. Um, couldn't think of a better and more beautiful place to do a book talk. Um, thanks also to the Educational Bookshop for arranging to have some copies of Citizen Hariri. They're sitting over there. Uh, and thanks to Tofik for discussing my book. Because when I was reading uh, his excellent uh, Palestine Limited, uh, I was struck by the sort of common themes of our research, uh, especially how we use neoliberalism as a concept, which, you know, has similarities and some differences as well. So um, the way this book started was that on 14 February 2005, I was sitting in the library of what was then IFEAD, the French Institute in Damascus, preparing my PhD research proposal for SOAS. And during a break, I noticed that people were huddling around a portable TV in the lobby that was transmitting grainy images of a bomb that had exploded in uh, Beirut. So it was the stuff that you used to see in Iraq at the time, but this was um, one killed former billionaire Prime Minister Rafi Kariri. So a month later, I witnessed, uh, on 14th of March, I witnessed the Beirut rally calling for the withdrawal of Syrian troops from Lebanon. And this later gave the name to the anti-Syrian coalition uh, March 14, led by Rafikari San Saad. Now, what intrigued me about Rafikari was not so much the manner of his death, although that's, of course, an important question, but I was more interested in his life and what it tells us about Lebanese politics. Because Hariri was neither a militia leader during the civil war, 1975 to 1990, nor was he one from the elite families that uh, had dominated pre-war Lebanese politics. Uh, he was the son of a smallholder in southern Lebanon. He grew rich as a contractor in Saudi Arabia uh, during the 1970s oil boom. He then returned to Lebanon as an investor and a Saudi mediator in the 1980s, and later as prime minister in the 1990s. And he shaped Lebanon's post-war reconstruction like no other. So what does the rise of a political outsider like this tell us about Lebanese politics. So I'm using what sociologist C. Wright Mills had called the sociological imagination, using individual biography to explain social, economic, and political change. This also means that the book is not a conventional biography. I don't inquire into my subject's sort of emotions, his personality, his motives, and it's not the story of a great man shaping Lebanese history, but it's what the political biography of the man tells us about Lebanese history itself. So it's a study of the society that enabled Rafiq Hariri's politics. Nor does Rafiq Hariri act alone. He built his own network of employees and collaborators, and he's in conflict and cooperation with other elites, militia leaders, the Syrian regime in Syria, in Lebanon, etc. So there are two main things that I learned from my research. The first one is that Rafiq Hariri epitomized the rise of Gulf capital in Lebanon's political economy and the decline of Lebanon's pre-war bourgeoisie. Gulf capital is a term that Adam Hanir has coined, and uh, Hariri's economic policies moved Lebanon into the orbit of Gulf frontierism, exposing the country to the vagaries of oil-induced boom and bust. The second thing that I want to stress tonight from the research is that the useful lens to analyze Hariri's reconstruction of the Lebanese economy was neoliberalism. And this is where my work touches uh, on the same concerns as uh, Tofik's. Now, neoliberalism is a sort of a Marmite concept. Apologies to, uh, for the UK reference. Marmite is uh, a sort of chocolate uh, sort of spread that people either love or they hate. And it's the same with neoliberalism. So some people reject it because it's mainly pejorative. No one calls themselves a neoliberal. But I argue that it's more than an intellectual swear word. Hariri's policies throw up a research puzzle that is central to understanding the nature of neoliberal capitalism. His two signature policies were the reconstruction of central Beirut through a private develop developer called Solidaire and anchoring the Lebanese pound to the US dollar and in, in effect pegging it. So Hariri argued that Lebanon had become a closed economy during the civil war. The successful pre-war economy had been disrupted and he promised to return Lebanon to the world. Beirut city center reconstructed with world-class infrastructure was to be Lebanon's business card 
an advertisement to draw in foreign investors. And a currency anchor was to inspire investor confidence. So Lebanon's return to the world economy was to be driven by the private sector. And Hariri justified these policies with this liberal rhetoric. And this is uh, similar or has, has echoes of what we have here, uh, what we had here with Fayadism. And yet these policies were highly illiberal. Even during the days of the militia economy in Lebanon, it was not a closed economy. The Beirut city center reconstruction relied on the transfer, relied on the transfer of property rights from tens of thousands of owners uh, and tenants to the single real estate company Solidaire. Hariri was a shareholder of Solidaire, of course, and Hariri mobilized the state to reassign property rights, so a deeply illiberal policy. Secondly, Lebanon had had a floating exchange rate and free capital movement since 1952, and Hariri ended the float and anchored the currency on the US dollar. So interest rates had to remain high to sustain the anchor, and while this was costly for the treasury, it was very lucrative for Lebanese banks who hold most of the debt. And one of the banks was owned by Rafik Hariri. So some commentators have therefore argued that Hariri made Lebanon less liberal than it was during the pre-war era, when the freewheeling country was known as the Merchant Republic. So with Hariri, we have liberal talk and illiberal walk. Now, this contradiction is not unique to Hariri, but goes to the heart of neoliberalism. It's not, neoliberalism is not a defined set of policies, just like socialism is not a defined set of policies. And what I wanted to know in the book is how neoliberalism traveled to Lebanon, what happened to it there, and both Tafiq's and my work is very concerned with actually existing neoliberalism, how neoliberal templates are realized in specific political contexts. And although, of course, the contexts are different, Palestine and, and Lebanon, uh, I think we can talk more about uh, how you know, we can learn from that framework. So as David Harvey has pointed out, neoliberalism is a jumble of contradictory projects. It's an ideological project which says that markets uh, allocate resources more efficiently than government. And it's also a political project. It favors capital over labor and is therefore a class project. It requires the rollback of the state in some areas, for instance, through privatization, but it requires strong state action to build markets and to assure capital accumulation. Lebanese neoliberalism was first and foremost a project defined by the interests of Gulf contractor Rafi Kariri and his business partners. He used the Lebanese state to accumulate capital and put in place various rent creation mechanisms. Now, the conventional story that we have of neoliberalism in the Arab world involves the IMF or the World Bank forcing countries into structural adjustments. So Egypt is the famous example. In Palestine, Taufik books, Taufik's book uh, focuses on the donor community and on state building by them. In Lebanon, Gulf capital was the main agent of neoliberal reconstruction uh, of state and economy. So I'll talk now briefly about the six chapters of the book. Chapter one provides an introduction of what I just talked about. Chapter 2 explains Hariri's rise from outsider to key politician. In Chapter 3, I analyze rent, key rent creation mechanisms that Hariri put in place. Chapter 4 shows how Hariri's policies were reproducing the political economy of sectarianism and why Hariri turned into a more obviously sectarian leader in the late 1990s. Chapter 5 deals with the political crisis after 2000 which led up to Hariri's assassination. So while international factors were dominant in this period after 2000, I also look at the way that Hariri used privatization to undermine rival elites and how he called on Saudi support to avert financial collapse. And the final chapter concludes. So in chapter two of my book, I explain Rafi Hariri's rise from political outsider to the center of Lebanese politics. So Lebanon's role at, the indep at independence in 1943 was to mediate trade and finance between the Arab East and Western markets. This business model depended on the illiberalism of other Arab states. So Lebanon attracted capital fleeing from Palestine in 1948 and later from so-called Arab socialism in Syria or in Iraq. And Lebanese banks were recycling early petrodollars from the Gulf. A few families had monopolized trade and finance and this bourgeoisie dominate the politics from the onset of the civil war uh, from the, uh, to the onset of the civil war in 1975. 
burning Lebanon this label of a merchant republic. So much, although we always think about uh, sectarian divisions of elites in Lebanon, they were held together in the pre-war era by this common economic interest. Hariri didn't come from this uh, elite. He was born in the southern city of Sidon. His father lost a fruit orchard to a creditor and was reduced to wage labor. Um, so he was one of the victims, in a sense, of the inequities of the pre-war laissez-faire political economy. Now, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, several challenges arose to that pre-war system. Firstly, popular movements started pushing back against these political bosses and uh, the bourgeoisie. Secondly, army commander turned president Fouad Shihab built strong state institutions such as a central bank that challenged the political control and economic power of Lebanese elites. And these institutions are also going to be important later in my story because Hariri repurposed many of these strong state uh, institutions for his neoliberalism. So his neoliberalism was no return to a lesser fair state. It actually relied on the few strong state institutions that Lebanese history had previously thrown up. So the civil war broke out in 1975. Lebanon lost its role as an intermediary between Arab East and Western finance and trade, and Western banks left Lebanon. During the oil boom of the 1970s, the Arab Gulf countries started banking directly with European and American banks, and Lebanon was no longer needed. So the economic opening of other Arab economies eroded most of Lebanon's comparative advantage as, in, as the Arab world's most liberal economy. And Lebanon's changing role in the global economy led to a decline of the local pre-war bourgeoisie, and new players entered the arena. Firstly, militia leaders were teaming up with uh, local business people, local business allies, essentially monetizing uh, their military control. And another crucial source of foreign funds uh, were remittances from the large Lebanese diaspora in the booming Gulf states. So the second set of entrants into Lebanese politics and economy came from this pool of emigres. Several of them had grown wealthy as contractors during the oil boom, and they returned to their native Lebanon in the 70s and in the 80s um, to become investors and to become politicians. So Rafik Hariri is not unique. He's just the most prominent example of this. Other examples include Najib Mikati, who also became prime minister, Issam Faris, who became deputy prime minister, and Mohamed Safadi, who was finance minister at some point. Hariri went to Saudi Arabia in 1964, and a bit more than 10 years later, he succeeded as a contractor in 1976, when he teamed up with a well-connected Saudi engineer who had access to royal contracts. So the following year, King Khaled put Hariri and uh, that engineer in charge of a hotel called the Masara Hotel in Taif, which Hariri realized sort of in a very record time with little regard for cost, and that's kind of one of the founding myths of Hariri, how quickly and amazingly he could build this hotel. And apparently the king was so impressed that he bestowed Saudi citizenship on Hariri. And at the time, this brought tangible benefits, economic benefits, in a kingdom where lucrative contracts were only open to nationals. Hariri also bought Auger, the French construction company that he had recruited to carry out this hotel contract. And the company became the heart of the Hariri conglomerate. So was Hariri a Saudi capitalist or was he a Lebanese capitalist? And here I like Tawfiq's notion of chameleon capital that he applies to Palestinian business uh, tycoons in the Arab world. They're Jordanian in Jordan, they're Saudi in Saudi Arabia, and they're Palestinian in Palestine. Significantly uh, for Hariri, the source of the original sort of capital accumulation was in the Gulf. Now, chameleon capital changes its color by necessity, but it also seeks a permanent home in a state that they can shape according to their interests. So Hariri shaped Lebanon's neoliberal reconstruction, and the Palestinian diaspora capital tried to teamed up with Arafat and later Salam Fayyad to shape Palestine Limited, as you called it. Um, now, Hariri's promotion to a national and even international role came after the Israeli invasion in 1982 of Lebanon. And that was uh, when he started preparing plans to rebuild central Beirut as well. After the shelling of West Beirut had forced Arafat and his PLO fighters to depart to Tunis, Hariri organized the cleanup of Beirut and of the rubble. 
he appears to have taken that initiative and then approached the Saudi king to pay for it. So the cleanup was a way for Hariri to kind of advertise his political usefulness in Lebanon to the Saudi king. And it was after this cleanup that Hariri started acting as a Saudi mediator between the warring parties in the 1980s in various sort of peace initiatives. And of course, uh, he was involved in the Taif Accords, which helped end the war in 1989. Now, Hariri's diplomacy during these years tracked Saudi and American priorities. By the time the Taif Agreement was reached in 1989, Washington and Riyadh had pragmatically accepted that Syria was the main power in Lebanon, and Syria's main Lebanese opponents were being sidelined, such as Michel Aoun, Amin Jamal, and later Zamir Jaja. Now, in return for the Saudi support, uh, in Lebanon for Syrian-dominated post-war order, the Saudi representative Rafiq Hariri was playing a central role as prime minister. So to summarize, there are two factors that explain Rafiq Hariri's rise from political outsider to prime minister. One was uh, that Hariri was one of several Lebanese-born Gulf contractors who were seeking to shape the post-war economy and politics since at least 1982. And the reason why Hariri became the most politically influential player of these was uh, the strong Saudi support he enjoyed. So Hariri embodied a sort of Saudi-American rapprochement with the Syrian regime. This was linked to the Cold War, Syrian participation against Saddam Hussein in the Gulf War in 1981, 1991, and the peace process with Israel. And once that international situation changes after 2000, Hariri's situation also becomes untenable. And I return to this theme in chapter 5 of my book. So in chapter three, I deal with the political economy of reconstruction in the 1990s, and I break it down into rent creation mechanisms. So how rent is created, who appropriates rent, and how it is shared, and what institutions and elite networks govern rent creation and rent sharing. So the reconstruction of central Beirut was the centerpiece of Harir's economic policy. Um, and you see pictures these days of sort of glitzy uh, downtown Beirut, um, and it's sort of you know, an advertisement for, supposed to be an advertisement for Lebanon. So it's not surprising in a sense that a Gulf-based construction tycoon would identify an urban mega project as the key to economic success of this country. He justified the project with the language of neoliberalism. Lebanon was to become a competitive economy by acquiring world-class infrastructure, and Lebanon would thus become a magnet for foreign investment. And again, we see echoes of Fayadism here. The context, of course, was the sort of New Middle East, as Paris had called it. Uh, Israeli economic integration into a regional economy would lead to peace, and he wanted Lebanon in the early 1990s to be sort of ready to take advantage of that constellation. Now, a law in 1991 uh, led to the transfer of property rights from previous owners to a single private development company called Solidaire in return for shares. The developer then maximize profit by marketing the reconstructed city center to the high-end luxury market. So in Beirut city center, one geographer estimated that 80% was actually destroyed after the civil war um, of, the, of the fabric uh, to make it ready for this sort of commercial exploitation. And planning was privatized in the hands of Solidaire. The main beneficiaries were Solidaire shareholders and developers who acquired plots from Solidaire, and many came from the Gulf. So Solidaire was, in a sense, a magnet for Gulf investment. Now, what's important if we think about neoliberalism here in the state was that the state was crucial because it reassigned property rights. The state also helped defray costs and reduce risks in other ways. This neoliberal urban governance disabled municipal democracy and unaccountable institutions were working for the interests of investors rather than ordinary Beirutis. So what we have now is that Solidaire is an island of wealth, a sort of elite playground in the, for the rich in the middle of Beirut. Um, the majority of Beirutis don't really frequent it. There are no shopping, transport, or entertainment facilities for poorer sections of society. And the winners of Solidaire are, of course, wealthy Lebanese or Gulf developers and investors. So in the book, I show how Solidaire reproduced this sort of template of neoliberal urbanism. We know these mechanisms going on elsewhere. At the moment, I study, for instance, Abdali in, uh, uh, in, in Amman as well, which has similar things going on. But it also happened within the specific framework of Lebanese politics. Hariri had to win over Beirut urban notables and large landowners, 
religious endowments who were holding land in the area as well as militia leaders who ended up representing the internally displaced in the area. Um, so Hariri needed strong state institutions to realize his plans. And the only institutions that he had at hand had been created by Shehabis technocrats. So the Council of Development and Reconstruction was Hariri's main vehicle, the CDR. It was founded in 1977 by the Shehabis president, Elias Sarkis, as a highly autonomous and powerful agency to rebuild Lebanon. This was a time when people thought the civil war was over. And so the state was getting ready to kind of become active in post-war reconstruction. But it lay dormant until uh, 1991 when Hariri sort of took charge of it. And he put one of his employees at the head of this agency. So in constructing Lebanese neoliberalism, Hariri didn't draw on the institutional legacy of the laissez-faire state that didn't do very much, but on the sort of bits of interventionist state that did exist in Lebanon. Hariri was drawing on another Shihab-era institution for the second rent creation mechanism that I examined. From 1993, the central bank started managing the exchange rate, exchange rate and steadily appreciated it until fixing it in 1997. Interest rates had to keep high, and the government at times borrowed a lot more than uh, it was, was required to cover the budget deficit. And this overborrowing uh, was financed by Lebanese commercial banks and refinanced by drawing in Lebanese pound deposits. Now, this sort of managed currency appreciation had three effects. First of all, government debt skyrocketed under Hariri's premiership from about 50% of GDP in 1993 to 109% in 1998. Now, public debt of this scale had previously been virtually unknown in Lebanon, and the prime driver of this debt was not the cost of reconstruction, but of debt servicing. Banks and depositors realized high profits from this. Lebanese banks earned $6.3 billion alone in interest on treasury bills between 1994 and 1996. And the high interests were such thus a form of rent appropriated by banks and depositors. Another effect was crowding out of private sector investment. So for banks, it was simply much easier uh, and simpler uh, to lend to the government than to private businesses or households, and this depressed private sector investment. And you can imagine what effect that has in a post-war uh, economy. Now in Lebanon, bank ownership and bank deposits are highly concentrated, so it was a very narrow stratum of uh, society that appropriated rent from the scheme. Much of the investment comes from the Gulf, not least from wealthy Lebanese diaspora there. And the Lebanese banking sector in this way became another magnet for Gulf investment in Lebanon. Rafiq Hariri, of course, was one of the owners of uh, the biggest banks in Lebanon and one of the biggest beneficiaries, uh, and it's Banque Mediterranee. The institutions that ran this process of appreciating the currency were all uh, controlled by associates of Rafiq Hariri. So Fuad Sanyora was acting finance minister. He had been Hariri's school friend, and in the 1980s, he ran Banque Mediterranee on behalf of Rafiq Hariri. Central Bank Governor Riyad Salame had reportedly managed Hariri's portfolio at Merrill Lynch. The PEG uh, was in this sense self-serving, but it also had a wider rationale. Pegging the currency on the US dollar signaled confidence to potential investors. But at the same time as doing that, uh, signaling sort of macroeconomic propriety, it also results in rigidity, rigidities, loss of economic policy autonomy and imbalances. So by 2006, Lebanon's public debt stood at 185% of GDP, which is one of the highest rates in the world, and one of the reasons was this burden of debt servicing and this debt trap. So three main points emerged from this chapter. First of all, Hariri's neoliberalism depended on the state to reassign property rights and reduce costs for capital. Neoliberalism was a class project. Solidaire and the currency anchor made Lebanon an outlet for Gulf capital and for Lebanese diaspora capital. Hariri reproduced some neoliberal policy templates, but his economic policies were also grounded in speci specific Lebanese politics. He was drawing on the institutional legacy of the Lebanese state using the central bank or CDR, so existing institutions. So this was no return, as I said again and again, to a laissez-faire state, but was drawing on the sort of Shihabist institutions. And Hariri had to bring potential veto powers on this side. So the Syrian regime, local notables, former militia, militia leaders, 
And this meant he had to create investment opportunities for these um, economic winner to, winners of the civil war. In chapter 4, I look at the political economy of sectarianism. I argue that the wider social effects of Hariri's economic policies were unemployment, continued poverty and inequality. And this reproduced the political economy of sectarianism, where the majority of the population continues to rely on resources controlled by politicians for access to jobs, healthcare, or education. And once you're in that situation, of course, it becomes easier for politicians to exploit that. Now, while Hariri himself was initially not constructing a confessional clientele, this changed from the mid-1990s onwards, when he started providing health and education services mainly, but not exclusively, to his own Sunni community. So I look at why that change comes about, what was that logic? So initially, Hariri was not particularly interested in being a Sunni leader. He consciously fostered an image, actually, as the opposite, as a sort of national figure and politician. And he contrasted his concern for business and reconstruction with the destructive sectarianism of wartime militias. By the mid-1990s, he had to change course. His economic projects came under increasing pressure from the Syrian regime and its allies in Lebanon. In 1998, the Syrian regime installed Army General and Hariri nemesis Emil Lahoud as president in Lebanon. Lahoud targeted Hariri and his technocrats in a, what he called an anti-corruption drive, and Hariri stepped down as prime minister and made plans to contest the parliamentary elections in 2000. So that's the context, the parliamentary elections in 2000, in which he sort of embraces uh, the, the sort of uh, Lebanese type of clientelism. So he started to bolster his credentials within the Sunni community. He had already arranged for the election of his preferred candidate, Muhammad Rashid al-Kabani, as Mufti of the Republic in 1996. And an important episode with uh, respect to Beirut politics was that he politically neutralized the Makassid Association, which was a patronage vehicle for the Salam family that served Sunni Beirut. Now, he exploited the association's financial, fin association's financial difficulties, and Makassid was forced to close some schools and lay off staff. In 1999, Hariri started opening his own health centers and schools that were rivaling Makassar. The location of the health centers suggests that Sunni Beirutis were the main beneficiaries. And the opening ceremonies for each health center became major campaign events for the parliamentary elections in 2000. So having outspent his rivals, Hariri's list won all the seats in Beirut, pushing Tamam Salam out of the parliament. And this was the first time a Sunni leader had managed to completely marginalize all uh, of his sect's rivals uh, politicians in the capital. The eclipse of Makassid by the Hariri Foundation symbolized the decline of Beirut's Sunni bourgeoisie and the rise of Gulf capital. The civil war had eroded Makassid's financing model, which depended on properties owned in the city center and uh, fees from uh, the uh, schools. Solidea then took over those properties and Makassar grew dependent on Saudi financial injections, which ceased in 1996. So Makassar could not compete against Hariri's more financially powerful foundation. So while this epitomized the rise of Gulf capital and the decline of uh, traditional Beirut notable families, the mechanism of confessionalized clientelism remained intact. Hariri reproduced this political economy of sectarianism. In chapter 5, I turn to the crisis that preceded Hariri's assassination. <clears throat> the context of the assassination was increasing uh, regional tension. Remember that cordial Saudi-Syrian relations were sort of the, the key to Hariri's rise after Tad. And when this relationship deteriorated, Hariri's position became more difficult. The rise in regional tensions increased um, as tension between Hariri and the Assad regime increased. The breakdown of the Syrian-Israeli peace process in 2000 and Israel's withdrawal from South Lebanon, uh, leading to Lebanese calls for Syrian withdrawal, was one issue. 9-11, the war on terror and the invasion of Iraq in 2003, led to tension between the Assad regime and America's Arab ally, Saudi Arabia. And meanwhile, individuals within the Syrian regime, within, with whom Hariri had built up a strong bond, were being sidelined by Bashar al-Assad, who was consolidating his power after accession in 2000. 
Now, the fallout between Hariri and Assad is well known. It culminated uh, in uh, UN Security Council Resolution 1559 in September 2004, which called for Syrian withdrawal and the disarmament of Hezbollah. The Assad regime suspected that Hariri was the driving force behind the US and French-sponsored resolution. And on 14 February 2005, he was assassinated together with 21 others. A much neglected aspect of the political crisis between 2000 and 2005, the assassination, was a tussle over the economy. Hariri returned as um, prime minister in 2000, and he was using the privatization of state-controlled entities to undermine the patronage resources of Syria's allies in Lebanon. So he sought to privatize Electricité du Liban uh, and uh, Middle East Airlines, and he wanted to cut spending on the Council of the South. And all these institutions were serving the clientele of Nabi Beri, the leader of the Shia Amal militia. He also tried to cut spending on the military, which is Lahut's purview. And Hariri, of course, justified all these policies not by saying that, oh, I want to cut money from these guys. He uh, used neoliberal rhetoric of economic efficiency through privatization. But they were also part of these intra-elite power struggles. While pressuring opponents in that way, Hariri was also salvaging rent creation mechanisms that he had put in place himself. So he regained control of the institutional mechanisms that were running uh, the reconstruction of central Beirut, so the CDR and Beirut municipality. And he also averted financial collapse in Lebanon. By late 2001, Lebanon was on the brink of financial crisis. The government debt-to-PhD ratio at that time stood at 180%, which was one of the highest ratios in the world. So he, Hariri realized that he required an international bailout. The AM, IMF was unwilling to support an unsustainable pick, and the US government was not prepared to bail out Lebanon unless the government would rein in Hezbollah, which Hariri was unable or unwilling to do. So Hariri, in 2001, turned to his longtime ally, ally French President Jacques Chirac, to back an international donor conference in Paris in 2002, which became known as Paris II. And Saudi Arabia provided the bulk of the financing. Now, the significance of this move is revealed by an IMF working paper published in 2008. And the authors ask how on earth Lebanon could manage to avoid financial collapse despite its high debt and recurring political crises. And the answer they came up with is that investors perceive an implicit guarantee. And if you do a little digging of who these donors are, it becomes quite clear that it's Saudi Arabia. The monarchy has gone out of its way to show that it's willing to maintain investor confidence in the Lebanese government. And Paris too, therefore, completed Lebanon's journey from an intermediary between Arab East and Western financial markets prior to the Civil War, prior to the Civil War, to the status of a sort of second-order rentier dependent on the Saudi economy. And Lebanon is an outlet for Gulf capital, and its shaky government debt is guaranteed by the monarchy. And I've shown in the book Hariri's role in bringing about this um, dependency. So in a final chapter, I conclude. Rafik Hariri was a representative of Gulf capital in Lebanon. He made the country an outlet for Gulf capital by instituting the Solidaire project and the currency anchor. And this led Lebanon into a debt trap that integrated the country into Gulf frontierism. Hariri followed global neoliberal templates in urbanism and currency management. But in order to interpret the sort of actually existing neoliberalism in Lebanon, we also have to take into account the country's specific social structure and institutional history. Hariri had to compromise with local elites, which were able to veto his policies, and not least the Syrian regime. And Hariri did not return to the laissez-faire state of the pre-war period, but he repurposed jihadist institutions for neoliberal ends, the Central Bank and the Council for Development and Reconstruction. In the book, the main actor is not necessarily Rafik Hariri himself, but the network of technocrats and business allies that he assembled. And while Hariri brought the sort of financial capital, the technocrats brought the cultural capital which allowed Hariri to strategize. The billionaire himself did not come up with uh, the plan to anchor the currency, uh, and he relied on his technocrats to deal with the IMF and to set up Paris II negotiations. And he also poached experts in local electoral mobilization from Sunni institutions in Beirut. So the history of this Hariri network is actually really interesting. And you can read in the personalities of sort of twists and turns of his own 
political project. The network epitomized many of the contradictions of neoliberalism. For Hariri, neoliberalism is a class project. It's a sort of for self-enrichment. And for his technocrats, it's an ideological project of saving Lebanon's economy from predatory militia leaders. And I wonder, if, again, we have echoes here of sort of Fayyadism, where you have technocrats who sort of dream to, to, to turn uh, the Palestinian economy into a, a sort of neoliberal market economy, and uh, local capitalists who um, sort of have their own agendas in that respect. There are also wider lessons. The tycoon as a politician is a type. So I wrote an opinion piece in Open Democracy discussing what Hariri, Italy's Berlusconi, or Taksin Shinawat in Thailand can tell us about the way that Donald Trump will run America. I also point to crucial differences between Trump and the other tycoons, which make him, Trump, a lot more dangerous. Um, the book is also relevant for the wider Arab world because Gulf capital is playing an increasingly important role in other non-oil Arab states such as Jordan, Egypt, Tunisia, and Morocco, Palestine to an extent, as Adam Hania has argued, but you know we can talk about that. Um, and in my current project, I sort of look at these uh, political and economic effects of Gulf investment uh, in the other Arab states. So this is where I conclude, and thank you so much for listening to me. Mm -hmm. Everyone hears me, yes? Okay, good. Uh, well, I hope uh, you you see from from this presentation that uh, Hannes's work is uh, it, 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 it's a sophisticated, complex uh, accounting of the Lebanese scene, neoliberalism in in, in Lebanon, uh, and I, I, I highly enjoyed the book. I must start by first saying that I, I only finished reading the book today <laughs> and so in a way uh, like uh, it was very helpful to hear you sort of give us the cream of the uh, of the of the project uh, but like any good book or any good m movie I also feel it takes some time for uh, the messages to sort of uh, uh, settle a little and, and for you to develop exactly what what what, what you see is uh, the both the unique contributions of the book and uh, what, what we can learn from it. But uh, I, 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 I should start by saying that I, I highly enjoyed the book and do feel that it has a lot to contribute, particularly in terms of uh, bringing, bringing this story together of uh, this neoliberal experiment uh, through the character and biography of Rafiq Hariri. Uh, as I'm reading this book, uh, uh, as in other contexts, neoliberalism tends to reproduce very similar mechanisms and, and, and techniques and technologies of control and, uh, uh, and rewriting social orders and, and, and social relations. And so it's perhaps only natural that I begin to see, the, the, uh, see parallels to the Palestinian context as I read them. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a story of... Uh, for instance, uh, perhaps many people here may not know, but the Council for Development and Reconstruction, which is founded in 77, but Hariri takes over in 1982, is actually the model that the World Bank uses to construct PECDAR, which was supposed to be the main planning agency and reconstruction agency for the Palestinian Authority when it comes in in 1994. So they very much saw this empowered extra ministerial uh, institution as being able to play this role. Now, ultimately, that is not the, the ultimate legacy of what PECDAR is, because there actually ends up being a big struggle between the donors and the Palestinian Authority over the political direction of PECDAR, and it ends up taking a particular role. But the fact that it's part of the imagination of the donor community says a lot. Uh, incidentally, uh, donor community has ended up recreating similarly super empowered bodies that are extra ministerial, so they're beyond uh, democratic control in, the, in that right, such as the, the Palestinian Investment and, and Investment Promotion Agency, which tries to collect international funds. And I, I went, once last year, or not so long ago, went to a, a lecture where the, 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 the or it wasn't a lecture, it was a 
a public gathering where the gentleman who's running the, the, uh, the PIPA uh, boasted about how if there were any investors in the room who couldn't get the proper licenses uh, because they had to force go through the, 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 the official ministries, that he could get them for them within a month and, and that he was entitled to do that. So, so uh, providing such privileges to capital says a lot. Um, of course, there's, there's, there's plenty of parallels uh, uh, regarding uh, the circulation of, uh, of particular individuals between different ministries. Of course, everyone knows the fact that Salam Fayyad here was, was the former IMF representative and later obviously becomes Minister of Finance and then Prime Minister himself. You even have interesting phenomena where you have the reverse in Palestine, where you have Jihad Wazir, who was the former Palestinian monetary authority head. And by the way, the, the son of Abu Jihad himself, like the great guerrilla leader, who goes to work for uh, the, the, the IMF in Washington, which is something quite remarkable, I would say, when it comes to these things. Of course, the idea of fixing the game and uh, you know, control over institutions, state capture, uh, is it, a big part of, of the game, as well as uh, how projects are uh, inflated and, uh, and, uh, and, and spoken in sort of glorious terms, uh, salv salv salvation, uh, emancipatory projects like Rawabi or, or great, great achievements, uh, when in truth the reality, when these projects come down and are actually implemented, actually existing neoliberalism, the reality is much different. So there's a case that I read in, in, in Hannes's book, which talks about how the Solidaire's project in central uh, Beirut was supposed to have uh, social infrastructure spending of around 28% and an additional 12% or just under 12% for productive infrastructure. In the end, it was completely the opposite. More than 80% uh, went for physical infrastructure. The social infrastructure was only 12%, less than half of what they were projected, and productive infrastructure was only for 1.5%. So much less than it, the projected 12% that they, they had promised. So in truth, they, they, these projects tend to say things, but when it comes down to things, it's much different. And in fact, a lot of the donor community projects in, in Palestine and which are done in alliance with Palestinian Authority as well as Palestinian capitalists have similar sort of uh, uh, act similarly. For instance, the, uh, earlier there was a fairly well-known project of uh, uh, the Americans were trying to support small and medium income enterprises, SMEs, which are basically, you know, very uh, the, the majority of the Palestinian economic actors. Uh, and these are the ones who were left out of the peace process in many respects, uh, and you know, having less than 10, 10, 10 employees per, uh, per, per, per shop. Uh, and so the Americans had created a whole loan, loan program to try and help fund these, these, these sort of disenfranchised economic actors and uh, had created this loan pro project for them. In the end, when the money was actually distributed, it turned out that the money went to uh, uh, some of the big construction magnates and, uh, and, uh, and went to the building of the Movenpick Hotel in, in Ramallah. Uh, and this was justified, of course, no smaller medium income actors, uh, but justified on the basis that at least it, they had a lot of employees and then maybe these employees would uh, you know, get some money as well instead of it going around. So these are sort of just very similar off-the-cuff themes that I'm talking about. Uh, but what's more interesting is, I mean, instead of these small details and sexy details about, like, you know, revealing the sort of minutia of this dirty, sort of dirty back world of politics and donors and, 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 and structures and institutions, is, is the bigger picture. Hannes has an advantage, in a way, insofar as he has the character of Rafiq al-Hariri to organize his project around, and it, it, it's very helpful in that respect uh, because he can talk about how this poor son of an orange farmer uh, coming from influenced by the Arab nationalist movement, which I want to say was a, obviously an anti-sectarian movement, goes through, he follows the arc of it from his accumulation in the Gulf, eventually back to Lebanese politics, 
uh, working about around reconstruction. Incidentally, these guys had their eye on reconstruction very early in the game, very early in the game. I mean, they, they founded the Council for Reconstruction and Development in 1977. They had 13 more years of civil war <laughs> to go through. <laughs> so it tells you something. Uh, and then how the larger political economy, regional, international, neoliberalism itself, begins to inform, is, is the heaviest, is, is, is the real actor, which informs and irrigates and, and creates the opportunities and limitations of Hariri's activism, political, economic, his accumulation and his, his political action, resulting eventually in his sectarian turn and his deepening of the sectarian nature, reproduction and deepening of the sectarian culture in Lebanon and eventually his assassination partly as being a, a figure of it. In, in, in Palestine, we don't have such a figure who can unite. And if there's a figure who is in parallel to Hariri, it's actually not Fayyad. It is actually a similar class of construction magnates who accumulated in the Gulf, who became some of the major financiers and benefactors of the peace process and the reconstruction processes that were taking place as a result of the Oslo process. So we're talking about Munib al-Masri, we're talking about Saeed Khouri, Hasib Sabak from CCC, we're talking about, but Bashar al-Masri is a whole another dragon unto himself because he's a creation of the peace process itself. His accumulation isn't even from the Gulf, it's from the process itself. So he's a particularly speculative, predatory uh, entity, so to speak. But these are the characters who play a role in, in, in the Palestinian, these are the Palestinian equivalents of, of Hariri. But what, what, when I wrote my book, we had no Hariri to follow. So what I tried to do was I was trying to tell the story of the larger political economy. I was trying to do the reverse of what Hannes has done, okay? Speak about the larger uh, donor, Israeli, Palestinian, historical, political, political, economic context, the local OPT context, and then how in the Palestinian context rents emerge and are created deliberately, instrumentalized through the donor process to try and uh, realize certain political and economic and ultimately political economic ends. And, 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 and what I argue in my book is that the, it, because Palestine was so particular, the rents end up going into investment that is so speculative and predatory that they are productive in context of both war and peace. That's why you have situations like the situation in Gaza, where the electricity generator doesn't even create enough electricity, but it's still a profitable entity, even when it's bombed by Israel. These are the investments. In what, what Hannes is doing is he's talking about creating Solidaire and central uh, Beirut becoming a new uh, uh, project of accumulation of Gulf capital. What I feel, uh, part, part of what He's highlighting the, 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 how the rent circuitry is becoming re-circuited through the institutions of the state and this sort of game. Of course, the, the, the bigger, where my work and his work connect is actually in the back, back room. Who controls the rents? In his case, it's, it's the Gulf capital. And that's what, in the end, Hariri is killed because of his rent providers and their political agenda over, uh, over Lebanon. In the end, despite Hariri's desire not to be a sectarian leader, he was a, he was a Sunni construction magnate working in Lebanon in a sectarian context, which forced him to play the sectarian card. In Palestine, we have what I describe as chameleon capital, which Hannes described. Now, chameleon capital is a concept that I, I, I developed to mean basically that these these, these capitalists who, who made a lot of wealth providing services to uh, uh, Gulf, Gulf countries, very wealthy Gulf countries, oftentimes as intermediaries between the West and the Gulf, 
because they're not part of Kuwaiti or Saudi society, they change their color to the existing regime. In Palestine, there is no state, though. They are historically Palestinian, but in Palestine, they, they, they act, they fetishize the Palestinian nation. In, but these are the same actors who are also accumulating in Jordan and also in the Gulf. So when we look at... The, the, uh, when we look at, it's, these are the main winners of the economic and political project of the last 20 years. Uh, Fayyadism leads eventually to the rents of peace building and state building getting redistributed amongst them together with the widening of the pie with a local set of elites. But at the same time, there is no work that has been done on solving any of the political issues. So you end up with a situation locally where you have a form of pre-state privatization, control of all the services and entities having to do with a state, minus the sovereignty, but plus all the political problems that still exist, together with the economic problems that neoliberalism creates. In, in Hariri's case, he was unable to overcome the larger political economy. Similarly, as in Palestine, the dragons who come to take over cannot overcome the political economy. On the contrary, they are products of it. And as a result of it, what I show in my book is actually that Jordanian political influence begins to expand through this class of profiteers, which was a long-standing political interest of the Israelis and the donors, particularly the Americans themselves, which is a highly political issue. In the end, which is a, and, and no one has, this issue is still an outstanding issue in Palestinian politics, but one that has not been discussed. In the case of Hanes, what, what happens is you have Hariri pushing, building, creating, making a lot of money for him and his people and his gulfies, but at the end of the day, he can still only be seen as a sectarian character that has centralized the, the work of Gulf Sunni interests in Lebanon, and his, central, his successes become actually his failures because his success in centralizing the projects allows later on for its decapitation which results in actually them losing completely Lebanon. And that's the situation we have in, in Lebanon, uh, Lebanon today, to an extent, without, without saying too much. So I'll, I'll leave it there. <laughs> Maybe I've said a lot, but uh, thank you for the rich book, and thank you, Mandy, for organizing.